You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hang on, Molly. My uh, iPhone GPS says the Computer History Museum should be around here somewhere. It's here. We're right here. This is the entrance to the museum. Uh, I I thought we had to take another right around the corner here. Well, great. Computer History Museum here in Mountain View, California, dedicated to preserving stories and artifacts of the information age. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Are We Alone? Computers are ubiquitous, so much so that even comments on their ubiquity have become mundane and ubiquitous. But we still find ourselves astounded by how computers have inundated our lives. You know, five years ago, I'd never have used my phone just to navigate. Actually, I didn't have an iPhone five years ago. No one did. But this is a fast-moving technology, and advancements continue. And as they continue, we ask ourselves, should we be grateful for the progress that computers have brought to us or concerned about it? Well, we may gain some perspective on where computers are headed by looking at the history of these machines and where else, but here in the Silicon Valley. Okay, should we go in? Yeah. Oh, wow, this is quite modern-looking with a lot of steel and glass, very bright, lots of light. Well, well, I have to tell you, this used to be a Silicon Valley company, actually, Silicon Graphics, but they went away and the, the museum uh, took over the building. Google took over their other building, by the way, not very far away. <laughs> Google is taking over a lot. Oh, can I say that? I don't yes, know if I can. Do. I wonder where we should start. Well, how about that machine over there? You see that thing? Isn't that incredible looking? Yeah, let's see. It looks like an engine. Well, it is. It's all mechanical. Kind of funny to find something that's completely mechanical in a computer history museum, but in fact, I know what that is. That's Charles Babbage's difference engine number two. It's all mechanical, but that's the precursor to today's computers. How does something like that compute? Well, I mean, the way it works is it's mechanical. Well, wait a minute. They're about to give a demonstration. Why don't we go over and watch? Okay, let's see how it works. Hi, I'm Julie Neff. I'm a volunteer here at the Computer History Museum. What, what Julie, uh, you're going to work this uh, Babbage engine for us. Uh, what are you going to compute? Today we're going to compute a fifth order polynomial. Okay, and a polynomial is something like uh, 2x squared plus uh, 3x plus 6 equals 0 or something. That's exactly right. Okay, so how do you get this machine to know what you want it to do? Well, first we have to do some calculations by hand in order to get the setup values for the machine. Then we unlock the machine enter the values in the difference columns on the machine and lock it back down again. Okay, so so she's cranking the machine and how does that work? You have vertical steel rods and on each rod there's on the order of 20-25 gears with little cams on them, which are just little metal fingers, right? And so that, you know, every tenth decimal place, for example, requires you to move the, the vertical rod next to you and so forth. It's, look, it's just like a mechanical calculator that you might have used back in the 40s or 50s. And, and that's incredible because he did this just at the beginning of the 19th century. Now, here's a quotation from him up on the wall. It says, another age must be the judge. 
He said that in 1837. What did he mean? Yeah, what he meant was he actually never built this thing. It was not built during his lifetime. He thought it would work. He just designed it. It was all on paper. This thing was not built till the 21st century. So it took more than a century for Babbage's ideas to be realized, and a century is how long it took for scientists to understand a computer that is much older than what's in front of us, although it is another mechanism. That computer that I'm referring to goes all the way back to the Greeks. It's called the Antikythera mechanism. Right, Molly, and that is such a fascinating story. Apparently in 1901, some sponge divers in the Mediterranean who were blown off course you know, during a storm, they took shelter near a tiny island named Antikythera, and they found a wreck underwater there, and in it was this hunk of, of brass, some, some mechanism all corroded up, you know, and they, they brought it to the surface. They, they didn't quite know what it was. They just put it in a museum somewhere. Well, it turned out to be a clockwork mechanism with about 30 gears, scales, mark dials, wound by hand, and it turned out it was a mechanical computer designed to calculate the positions of the planets and the sun and the calendars and stuff like that. In her book, Decoding the Heavens, journalist Joe Marchant tells the story of how it took a century for scientists to figure out just what a remarkable find they had. But we can forgive them because what came up from the seafloor was initially pretty unremarkable. Initially, it didn't look like much at all. Um, it was just a bit of battered old rock that was ignored for months. They were bringing back all kinds of jewelry, statues, weaponry. You know, this was causing great excitement back in Athens at the National Archaeological Museum where it was all being taken. And, you know, all the other sort of various unidentified pieces were just shoved in a crate in an open courtyard. And it wasn't until months later when this particular piece cracked open, revealing inscriptions and traces of gear wheels, that they realized that they had something special here. Now, Antikythera just refers to, there's a small island. There's a, if you look on a map, you see Greece, and then you see Crete, you know, a little further down in the Mediterranean. And in between, there's this kind of big island, Kythera, and then there's this little small one, Antikythera. Presumably, it was found next to that small island. But does anybody know where this ship was headed? Probably to Rome. So the treasures that were found on board were Greek, but the actual ship was Roman, dates to the first century BC. And a lot of the things that were found on board, including the everyday items used by the crew, so likely to have been taken on board quite recently, came from the Asia Minor coast, Pergamon and Ephesus. So that's in the east. So it looks as though this ship was sailing west, probably stopped off at Rhodes, because they were good from Rhodes as well, um, and then would have been heading back to Rome. So the most likely explanation is that this was the Romans taking basically stolen Greek treasures back home with them. I see, and these didn't make it. Now, there's a fellow by the name of Derek DeSola Price, who apparently was instrumental in, well, determining that this was an instrument. Is that not correct? Yeah, that's right. So initially, when they realized they had something special, so 1901, sort of experts came from all over Europe to have a look at it, and they were exchanging articles in the popular press arguing about it, you know, was this a hoax, was this a modern instrument, was it an astrolabe? They didn't really get very far because the pieces are so battered, and they just look like sort of green, moldy cardboard. You can't really make very much out apart from this is the odd trace. So then it kind of got forgotten until after the Second World War, and it was in the 1950s that Derek DeSoyer Price, who was based at Yale, got interested in it. And he was the first to really start to put together an explanation of what kind of thing that this was. And he actually worked on it for about 20 years and then managed to x-ray some of the pieces as well. And he called it a calendar computer. He thought that it would have been a box covered in wood with a handle on the side, and you turn the handle, and then you have dials on the front and the back, which are telling you the movements of the sun and the moon and the sky and the, and the phases of the moon. And um, he, he was right about most of it. 
there was an awful lot more to the mechanism than he got, but he was the first person to really get the essence of what this thing was. There have been several articles in Nature magazine, I believe, about this mechanism. Tell me, what does it do? I mean, other than tell you, you know, the, maybe the phases of the moon and, and what month and, and what day it is, what, what else does this mechanism tell you if you just crank the knob? It basically tells you everything about the sky at any particular moment in time. So if you're turning the handle on the side, you're winding forwards in time or backwards in time. So you've got this main dial on the front, which is showing you the sun, the moon, and probably the five known planets at the time as well. Um, so showing you their movements in the zodiac. So it's giving you where they are in the sky at any particular time. You've got a pointer showing you the date. Um, you've got little revolving balls showing you the phase of the moon. Um, there's also star calendars inscribed on the front, so telling you what the, which stars are rising and setting at different times of the year as well. And this isn't just straightforward, you know, average speed. This is actually modelling the epicyclic theory of the Greeks to explain the wandering motions of the planets. So as you turn the handle, there's very complicated gearing inside, which is actually making the pointers move forwards and backwards. And with the sun and the moon, they're also modelling the sort of the varying speed that we see from Earth when we look at them. So that's quite impressive. And then on the back, you've got a couple of spiral-shaped dials. And one of those is a calendar marking quite long periods of time that sort of unifies the solar calendar and the lunar calendar. And then you've got an eclipse prediction dial as well. So that's showing you the different months and telling you what eclipses you can expect in those months, whether it's going to be a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse, and even information about the timing of the eclipse, what kind of eclipse. So it really is a full package in terms of what you can see in the sky. And you've mentioned all these astronomical things that it would model, but it also modeled something very cultural and of importance to the Greeks, did it not? Um, you're talking about the Olympiad dial. I am, yes. It could tell yeah. you when the next Olympics was in case you didn't read the papers. This was quite unexpected, actually, because this came out... So most of what I've talked about so far came out in a paper in Nature in 2006, but then a couple of years later, once they started reading the inscriptions, they found that this smaller dial... Yeah, it was a four-year dial, and it wasn't just the Olympics, but other Panhellenic Games as well, telling you which ones were happening which year. And that's not of astronomical significance, that's a, of cultural importance. I mean, they would have known when the Olympics were just as well as we do, so it wouldn't have been, you know, you needed it to tell you, but it was just a nice way of marking it. And, and that really shows that this probably wasn't an astronomer's tool or it wasn't used for making observations or anything like that. It was more of a demonstration. So probably to wealthy, educated audiences, but, but lay audiences rather than astronomers. I can imagine that if you were a very wealthy citizen of Athens, for example, uh, having one of these things might be appealing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they love to sort of show off knowledge to each other and, and, and gadgets and that kind of thing. I mean, this, would, this was really top of the range. This would have been a very expensive item. It, it's beautifully made. There probably wouldn't have been that many of them around. So whoever owned this probably paid an awful lot of money for it. <laughs> I'm speaking with Joe Marchant, who is the author of Decoding the Heavens, a 2,000-year-old computer, and the century-long search to discover its secrets, this story of the Antikythera mechanism. Uh, Joe, the fact that this thing was found more than 100 years ago, and only today are they publishing papers in learned journals about it, this is the result of modern technology being able to allow us to see inside this corroded mechanism better. Isn't that correct? Absolutely, and that's one of the things that I love about this story, um, just the, the ingenuity over the last century of different researchers finding out different little pieces of information about it. So I mentioned Derek de Sawyer Price was the first to x-ray it in the 1970s, but that, it was quite 
young technology at that point in terms of using x-rays to look inside archaeological objects and he got kind of quite fuzzy images all of these layers of gear wheels were just superimposed on each other you couldn't tell kind of what depth anything was at but then gradually teams have been using more and more sophisticated techniques up until most recently they've been using sort of 3d computed tomography so you get these beautiful computer reconstructions of sort of 3d you know you can fly through the middle of these fragments and, and see exactly how all the different bits and, and gear wheels are arranged and the pictures that they've come up with are just beautiful. This technology was clearly lost. I mean, there, there was at least a thousand years in which I don't think we had anything this sophisticated in terms of its mechanical complexity. Why was that? Any question like that to do with the history of technology always has a very complicated answer. But the kind of really simple answer is probably to do with the Romans. I and mean, They were taking over the whole Mediterranean at this time as is illustrated by the fact that this mechanism was found on a Roman ship that was carrying it, basically stolen it from somewhere. So, you know, this this is Greek technology. And the Romans sort of were amused by Greek technology and, and philosophy, but they, they didn't really take it that seriously, and they didn't ever really sort of build on that. And then when the Roman Empire collapsed, in terms of Western Europe, you know, pretty much everything collapsed. You know, you need certain economic circumstances and you need everything to be right for, for this kind of very high technology to be developed. So really, in terms of Europe, that was lost. And, and we have to look to the Islamic world to see kind of any hint of this technology surviving. So the, the next thing that we see that's anything close, so we don't see any more gear wheels until the 6th century AD. And then there's a, a Byzantine sundial which had eight gear wheels in it to model the movements of the sun and the moon. So much simpler than the Antikythera mechanism. And then in the sort of 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, we see some astrolabes with similar geared calendars from the Islamic world. So nobody ever built on this, and the sort of the heights of it were lost. But that essence of using gear wheels to model the movements of the heavens does seem to have survived. And, and it's quite likely that that did then come back to Europe in medieval times and, and triggered the development of astronomical clocks. You know, after your comment there about the fact that the Roman Empire, you know, just stopped this flowering, I, I got to blame the Romans for the fact that we didn't have the Industrial Revolution, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred years earlier, and we'd have the cure for death now. I mean, <laughs> you know, am I being unreasonable here? <laughs> well, I mean, Arthur C. Clarke said much the same thing. Actually, he was very interested in the Antikythera mechanism, and and he basically said that if the Greeks had been allowed to build on their technology. You know, we could have been to the moon by 400 AD. You know. um, I think most historians would kind of say, well, it's always more complicated than that. And, you know, and there are lots of factors that came into play. And, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think you can say it was all the fault of the Romans and we would have had the Industrial Revolution centuries ago. But, you know, it, it is very tempting. <laughs> all right. Well, Joe Marchand, thank you so much for talking to me about a very interesting piece of ancient technology. Thank you for having me. Joe Marchant is a freelance science journalist and the author of Decoding the Heavens, a 2,000-year-old computer and the century-long search to discover its secrets. Uh, well, processing power has certainly increased quite a bit since the Greek Seth, uh, even since Babbage's Victorian era. Right, and thanks to the ta-da computer chip. Now, maybe they have some computer chips in this computer history museum, do you think so? I think let's go look for one. And so where is all this computer power taking us? Well, we're going to find out where that's taking us, Molly. And we're also going to hear one inventor's vision of what's coming next. You can see pictures of the Babbage Difference Engine number 2, by the way, and the Antikythera mechanism on our blog, Are We a Blog? And that's on our website at radio.seti.org. You're listening to Do Computers Bite on Are We Alone?
From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Are We Alone? Seth and I are standing here in the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, surrounded by, what else, computers. Lots of them, small ones, laptops, but also these huge computers. Look at this computer here from 1954, Seth. This is as large as a, as a refrigerator. Yeah, well, that's only the memory unit, Polly. The right. computers behind it, it's as, as, as large as, as a refrigerator storeroom. That's what it is. This is just the memory storage here, This the thing that looks as big as a frigidaire? Yep, exactly. Let me, well, there's a little let me see how much memory it held. Okay, it four <laughs> four thousand words, four kilobytes of memory. Four kilobytes. Look, your cell phone has more memory than that. My computer has at home has two gigabytes, two billion bytes. This has four thousand. So what I have at home is almost a million times more storage, and it fits in you know a couple of little chips. What was being stored on that? What sort of memories does it have? This computer. Well, the memories this this computer has are all gone now. But it, it, this was used for the uh, defense of the United States against possible you know bombers coming in from the Soviet Union. That was the purpose of this thing. I mean, it's all about processing information, Molly. I mean, these things were not you know computing polynomials the way Charles Babbage's engine was doing. They're processing information. And think about it. That's what we do now. You know, you open up your your computer's browser and you go look for information on the web, for example. With, with all these improvements in computers, does it make my life any easier? Will I have better access to information? I mean, who needs all this information if you can't sort through it? Well, Molly, you're not the first one or the only one to think about that problem. Actually, there's a well-known mathematician, kind of a renegade guy, Stephen Wolfram, who thinks that he can improve the way you get access to information. He's looking for, if you will, a better search engine. He's got one that's called Wolfram Alpha. Stephen, why do we need a new search engine? Well, I'm not sure we need a new search engine. The, the thing that we're trying to do with Wolfram Alpha is something rather different. The concept is to build what we call a knowledge engine. The idea is, uh, in a search engine, one's taking the web as people have written it, and one's indexing that and making it possible for people to type in a few keywords and retrieve a collection of links that show them where on the web they might look to find information that's relevant to what they're asking about. But what we're trying to do is something different. We're trying to deal with computable knowledge. We're trying to take sort of all the things that have been figured out in science and, and other areas of systematic knowledge, and we're trying to set it all up so that inside our computers, we can have answers to questions that people ask computed right there. That if you ask a specific question of Wolfram Alpha, what it will try to do is to give you a specific answer to that question by computing that answer, even though it could be that nobody has ever asked that specific question before. Nobody has ever written down the answer to that question anywhere on the web or anything like that. Well, maybe you could give me an example of what Wolfram Alpha would do that, say, Google or Yahoo would not. Suppose I was looking up, you know, why do trees change color in the fall or something That's like that. That's not the kind of question that we deal with. I mean, if you want to know something like, where is the moon right now in the sky from where you're standing. You just type in moon, and Wolfram Alpha will figure out where you are. 
it will be able to do the sort of celestial mechanics computations to figure out the motion of the moon, and then it'll tell you the results for, you know, the moon should be 12 degrees above the horizon in this direction and so on, and this distance away and, and all those kinds of things. Or, for example, if you wanted to type in, you know, what you had for lunch today, a, uh, a muffin plus this plus a Coke plus whatever, it will go and compute what the total sort of nutritional content of that would be by using data that it has on different kinds of foods and on what a certain mass of some food would be and, and so on. So it sounds like what it's giving me is computed information, but I could compute all that stuff myself. I mean, is it just saving me time or is it telling me something I couldn't figure out myself? Well, so what Wolfram Alpha is dealing with is computable knowledge, which means knowledge that can be made systematic and can be computed with. And so that knowledge is the stuff that's come out of, you know, science and other kinds of areas of systematic knowledge. So sort of what's on the inside is maybe 10 terabytes, about 10 trillion pieces of data about, you know, every earthquake that's ever been recorded, you know, every asteroid that's known, every um, stock that's quoted on all sorts of exchanges throughout history, every weather observation, all these kinds of things. So there's, there's lots and lots of data. And then uh, on the basis of that data, there's lots of things that can be computed. And so another thing that's in Wolfram Alpha is, is a, a fair fraction of all of the sort of formulas and laws and quantitative relationships that science and engineering and other kinds of things have, have given us. You know, what I view Wolfram Alpha as doing is taking the things that sort of, in principle, areas like science have let somebody be able to compute and making it possible to actually get the answer quickly in sort of response to kind of a free-form question. Wolfram Alpha really then specializes in knowledge that requires either collating data, computation, handling existing data sets, uh, but it might not be very good for looking up, uh, you know, just something on your favorite movie star. I, I have to say, I used Google and then Wolfram Alpha here to look up SETI, which is, after all, a scientific subject. And with Google, I got a listing of websites, you know, headed up by SETI at home, the SETI Institute, the Wikipedia page on SETI, and the homepage of this radio show, for that matter. Then I used Wolfram Alpha, and the first thing I got was a page of information about a language used by 200 people in New Guinea. Yeah, one needs to understand. What Wolfram Alpha is about is giving specific answers to specific questions. It's not something where you type in a term and it's going to send you off to go and do your homework by reading a bunch of links on the web. Probably one day in Wolfram Alpha, SETI will give information about your particular organization. It doesn't do that right now because we haven't curated information about organizations like yours. That, that brings up an interesting point because the information on Wolfram Alpha is curated, which is to say that it's been pre-digested by people at your company. That sounds like an enormous amount of work, kind of like having a team of people go through the Library of Congress and distill out what it is that people might want to know. Surely that's a, a near impossible task? Yeah, I thought it might be. Turns out not to be. You know, we're kind of helped because we have Mathematica, a software system that we've been developing for the last 20 years or so that gets used by a few million R&D folk and so on around, around the world. That's sort of the basis for automating a lot of the tasks that need to be done in data curation. So one of, one of the big things that we've done is to build this sort of pipeline for um, doing data curation for all sorts of different domains where kind of one brings in raw data, one kind of organizes it, collates it, correlates it with other things, uh, checks it. It's amazing how often we find errors when we do automated checking of data sets that have been sort of out and about in the world for a really long time. And then we have to set it up so that it's really organized enough to be computable with. And yes, that's a lot of work. 
and I think, uh, you know, one of the things we sort of do as an anecdotal test of how far we've got is, you know, you go into kind of a typical reference library and you look around at all the shelves and you say, okay, what fraction of all these shelves have we covered in a, in a decent way? And I must say that by now, I would guess probably 90% of the shelves, we can say that we've at least got a decent distance into covering. And in some cases, we've, you know, by a factor of 100, more than covered what's in that particular category of information in, in a typical library and so on. You know, there's been some pushback uh, in the media recently about the, the growth in access to information. Some people would say that we're up to our ears in information, our inputs are overloaded, and that we're not thinking anymore. What would you say to that? Well, I think in terms of Wolfram Alpha, its main goal is to give sort of expert-level answers to specific questions. So we've gone through a lot of trouble to develop algorithms and heuristics and so on to try and precisely go against that issue of just sort of throwing out vast wads of material, but rather to try and make things so that it's all kind of as crisp as possible. Finally, Stephen, what's driving you to create Wolfram Alpha? I mean, is, is this strictly a business venture? Well, right now it's, a, it's primarily a free website. So, uh, you know, I've spent a huge amount on this. Hopefully it will turn out to be a, a good business venture or I'll feel a bit silly. But, um, you know, I do these things because I think they're intellectually interesting and I hope that they're useful for the world. I guess Wolfram Alpha is kind of my third large life project, the first being Mathematica, the second being a new kind of science. This is the third one. I like doing projects that sort of allow one to take large amounts of knowledge and so on and, and encapsulate them in a way that can really be built on. And, and for me, it's, it's just kind of satisfying to, you know, have a little iPhone in my hand and be able to enter some uh, scientific kind of thing or some mathematical kind of thing. And in this object that weighs only a limited number of grams, I'm getting back these results that I know were the great achievements of some scientist or, or some such other thing. And, and the fact that I can get this back immediately in the palm of my hand is, is uh, well, I find that exciting. All right. Well, Stephen Wolfram, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Stephen Wolfram is a mathematician, computer programmer, founder of Wolfram Research and Wolfram Alpha. Now, Seth, Stephen says that Wolfram Alpha is not a search engine, it's a computational knowledge engine. But for some people, it still may be considered just another distraction. Yeah, a distraction from the work they really ought to be doing. And that calls for some extreme measures. Our computers are changing out from under us. The devices of five years ago are nothing like the devices today. The distractions are immense. And to be expected to do the same type of work on these machines as they change so quickly under us is really the challenge. That's what I'm trying to address. Fred Stutzman has done that by giving us freedom. Freedom is the name of the software he has to liberate you from the tyranny of email, search engines, social networking sites, all that stuff. Maybe even computational knowledge engines, who knows. Install it on your computer and you are free to get other work done for up to eight hours anyhow. Sounds good, but Fred, don't we all already own a copy of Freedom called Free Will? Without a doubt. We all own our own copy of Freedom. Do we choose to use it is the question. So in some sense, we're trying to save ourselves from, well, not just ourselves, but from, you know, the march of technology. How does Freedom do that? Well, the way Freedom does that is a very brute force. You turn on Freedom, you type in your password, you set a time limit, and Freedom takes your computer offline for that time. Now, if you need to go back online, 
you have to reboot your computer. And for many of us, that's just a little bit more work than we're willing to do. We'd have to save our files, shut everything down. And so freedom is a mechanism to enforce a single focused kind of productivity where you're not distracted by, you know, internet, email, all of the kind of social and work obligations that show up in our computer that might distract us from our tasks, the tasks that we want to complete. So freedom takes you off the grid. I mean, you can still, you know, write and, 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 and do work that's local. You, you just can't, you know, go on Facebook and talk to your friends, that kind of stuff. I mean, these social media things are email. That, that, that's the kind of thing it's shutting down, right? Exactly. And, and when you think about, you know, when you sit down at your computer, the things you do, you, you know, you check your email, log on to Facebook, there's this constant din of activity that surrounds you that's that's interesting. I mean, we're interested in what our friends are doing or what our family has posted. What freedom does is it removes that din. It, it makes it unavailable. Now, with your software there, you have the freedom to choose how long you want to be off the grid from a minute or so to, to eight hours. Uh, why, why the eight-hour time limit? Is, is Are you afraid that people may, may implode if they don't check their email at least every eight hours? <laughs> That's a good question. When I first developed the program, it had a fixed time limit, and it was an hour, which was the, the time that I use Freedom for. I generally use it for about an hour. But then I got requests for people who wanted to use varying times. And so because of some technical limitations in the way that the operating system and the permissions and all of the things that are required to make Freedom work, I had to set an upper limit. And so eight hours was actually the limit that was most requested. I have a hard time believing that too many people actually use Freedom for that long because I think it is it is a challenge to be away from email for most of us for that long a period of time. Do you have any idea what the typical uh, uh, interval is for Freedom users? I would guess it's you know a shorter interval. I would think 30, 45 minutes, an hour, you know, two hours. Now, 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 this software is only available for Macs. Uh, do PC users not need freedom, or maybe they don't deserve it? What, what, what's your thinking there? <laughs> well, I think I, I think we're all benefited from something like this, and I I wouldn't be surprised in a couple of years if something like freedom is built into our operating systems. You know, freedom is a hack, you know, that I design. But I actually think that there's something pretty useful on a cognitive and behavioral level here, and I wouldn't be surprised if you know it's built into our systems. Finally, let me ask you this, Fred, because have you ever thought of putting this on cell phones, you know, to keep people from texting one another all day? <laughs> I have. I actually sat down with a iPhone developer to talk about the possibility of uh, doing something like Freedom. And unfortunately, what he told me is that the devices operate on a very low level and you really can't circumvent them. You you can't have freedom from your cell phone. The only freedom you have from your cell phone is taking the battery out and leaving it at home. Put it under a truck. Okay. Right. Well, Fred Stetsman, thank you so much for talking to me, and, and uh, not via an email or a Facebook message. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Fred Stutzman is a Ph.D. student at the University of North Carolina School of Information and Library Science. And Fred has found a convert in Peggy, Peggy Orenstein, that is, who's an author and writer, and the first to admit that her free will has found a real challenge in search engines and social networking sites. So she installed a copy of Fred Stutzman's Freedom in her computer to protect not just her time, but her thoughts, which would allow her to write the sort of column that she did for the New York Times Magazine entitled, Stop Your Search Engines. As the internet has taken over my life, I downloaded 
freedom, which is what I was writing about in the column, and I use it pretty religiously every day, at least for, I don't know, two to four hours a day. Otherwise, I, I have ADD. I can't, I can't focus long enough to have a thought if email is constantly intruding on me. Now, is it emailing? Is that the problem here? Is it mainly emailing? No, it's everything. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I, you know, I will, if I have a thought, like I'm working on a chapter for a book that I'm writing right now that involves the Disney princesses and, and Miley Cyrus and such, and I suddenly had some thought about how much money Miley Cyrus's last movie made, and so I have to go look online. And then that kind of breaks my concentration, and then I have to get back into my concentration and start to write again. And then I'll wonder what it was she was wearing that night at the concert, and then I'll go, you know, so I can go sort of on and on. Whereas if I turn off the Internet, I do what I probably did, you know, 20 years ago but can't quite remember, which is I just make a list of things that I am curious about or need to look up or want to, you know, read more on. And then I dedicate a certain amount of time a day to doing that, and the rest of the time I shut the dang thing off. So it's not that the the questions that you have are irrelevant, or perhaps they may be, but as a reporter, you have many questions. It's that you're trying to answer the questions and interrupting other thoughts and other things that you're doing at the same time. It's both. You know, I, I, I can think of something totally irrelevant, like, you know, how to peel a banana like a monkey or wanting to watch Bruce Lee use nunchucks to play ping pong. On, but, you know, but yeah, a lot of times it's that I will kind of, you know, it's my nature and my occupation and a professional hazard to research the heck out of everything. Now, in the piece that you wrote for the New York Times magazine entitled Stop Your Search Engines, you write that a typical day getting online, you might look up and three and a half hours have passed. And I think that's something many of us can relate to. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can, you know, waste a whole day. I think in the article, the example that I gave was, was for the article. Somebody had mentioned this notion of self-binding to me. And I thought, well, gee, that sounds interesting. So I hopped online to look up self-binding, and that led me to John Elster, who's a professor of political science at Columbia, who writes about self-binding, and that he writes about Ulysses, and that reminded me that I had read The Odyssey, and I should probably download it and take a look at it. And then I looked at that, and then I looked at The Sirens. You know, yeah, then suddenly um, days have gone by. But it sounds like it's not just the time that you feel like is being frittered away. It's a, it's a way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, and that's ultimately it. That's really what I was talking about in the piece. I mean, the the sort of... Uh, stream of consciousness, this is what I'm looking at. That was just kind of fun and a way to get into it. But what really concerns me and what I find in my own thinking is that, you know, thinking deeply and and really learning and gaining knowledge, those things are hard. And, and they're, they're both, you know, they, cognitively, there's processes that go on in our brain, and, and those take time and energy and space, and, and you can't keep beaming information and have that deeper knowledge happen. And then just, you know, the act of trying to think bigger thoughts and deeper thoughts and broader thoughts is a hard thing to do. And so it's a lot easier to just follow every little stone that's skipping across the surface of your brain rather than really dive deep down. Now, you said that you installed freedom, and is it helping? Oh, God, Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad that I have that. I'm so grateful to Fred, although I still haven't, I, I, I have to admit, I haven't donated the $10 yet that the program asks me for every time it stops. But it, it forces me, I mean, they're, they're, it's not good enough for me. I can't just turn off my, I have a Mac, so I can't just turn off my airport or thingy because I'll turn it back on again. And I can't just say I'm not going to go online because I will do it anyway. I mean, I'm sort of like, I suppose, it's it's a little bit too big of a barrier to go around. 
So I actually, I don't. 99% of the time, I don't. And the 1% of the time I do go around it, I, I cheat and I use my eye touch. But I don't like reading on that, so I won't really do too much damage on it. But for the Internet, it's this promise of unending knowledge, which is a phrase that, that you use in the piece. What does that mean, unending knowledge? Well, the, the, what I talked about was, and this is where the term kind of self-binding comes from, is Ulysses binding himself to the mast against the lure of the sirens. And if you recall the myth, he has all of his sailors, you know, stuff their ears so they can't hear, and then he ties himself to the mast because he really wants to hear what they're offering. And, you know, I don't know why everybody I've ever talked to, and, and myself included, have always assumed that what the sirens are offering is basically sex, right? They're so, like, beautiful and alluring that you can't resist them. But it turns out that actually, if you read Ulysses that, or the Odyssey, that's not what they're offering. They're offering the knowledge of all things, of everything that happens, I think is the phrase that they use. And, and so there's something sort of wonderful about thinking that the thing that Homer's saying people cannot resist is, um, or the Greeks before that, you know, that, that the thing that we can't resist is knowledge and learning, and, and that that is the ultimate temptation for humanity. But at the same time, you know, now we have that. Now the Internet is the siren, and it promises that you can sort of find out anything and find out everything about everything or everything about anything. And it's sort of true, but it's information, and information is not knowledge. Information is not something that's integrated into your brain and into your fabric of thinking. It's just kind of stuff. And as you point out, the seas were littered with corpses because sailors were lured to the sirens. Exactly. So, you know, you sort of picture us trying to find out everything on the Internet. And it's, it works because here we are, you know, the Internet is like the sea, right? And we're surfing it. And we're trying to get to this island of the knowledge that everything is possible. And we're ignoring the fact that there's corpses of people who are, who are just getting sucked in and not actually learning anything or getting anything done. You said that three and a half hours sometimes can pass, but with what you just said there, I think some people feel like like a year has passed in some ways in the cumulative amount of time that they have spent not doing what is meaningful work in their lives. Yeah, I mean, I really think there does end up being a loss of meaning, and it's just it really is fascinating because I, was, I, I kind of wrote at the end of the piece in a throwaway that the Internet has become so integral to my work that I can't recall what I'd do without it, and I really can't. It wasn't like it was that long ago, right? But I cannot recall how I found anything out. You know, I must have done it somehow. I was writing back then. I must have made phone calls or gone to the library or I don't know what. But, you know, it just, it has so transformed our lives in ways that are wonderful and ways that are kind of hazardous as well. And and finally, referring to your past searches, how do you peel a banana like a monkey? Oh, <laughs> It's on YouTube. You flip it the wrong end around so that you're at the bottom instead of at the stem end, and you squeeze it with two fingers, and it just pops right open. Peggy, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. It was fun. Peggy Orenstein is an author and contributing editor to the New York Times Magazine, which is where we found her article, Stop Your Search Engines. I might have that printed on a T-shirt. Coming up, we may want to stop the march of progress or at least slow it down, but can we? It's Do Computers Bite on Are We Alone? A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired. 
a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now we've come into the section where we're surrounded by chess games, games of chess. Yeah, chess playing computers more specifically. They look like chess boards, except they have buttons around the edges and uh, little screens and displays and a whole bunch of electronics inside. Here's a famous picture that's Gary Kasparov holding his head as he was playing Deep Blue, a computer. Yeah, in fact, well, here's Deep Blue right here. Here's, a, here's one of the Deep Blue computers, an IBM computer from, uh, you know, the late 1990s. Oh, that's the Deep Blue that beat Gary Kasparov. Well, the first time Kasparov won, but then they came back with a, a new version of Deep Blue, and he won. It's kind of interesting because Deep Blue is actually black. That's, There's <laughs> a cartoon up there. It says Kasparov beats Deep Blue in one move, and it's a picture of a hand uh, positioned near the off button of the computer. <laughs> Maybe well, that's the only way to beat computers. Yeah, well, apparently Kasparov said that uh, when he lost to Deep Blue, special edition, uh, he said uh, it was as if the machine had a kind of alien intelligence. So he was impressed anyhow. But, but it's interesting you use the word intelligence because look up here, um, one of the creators of Deep Blue, the quotation is, I never considered Deep Blue intelligent in any way. It's just an excellent problem solver in this very specific domain. That's by Murray Campbell, who helped create Deep Blue. So the word intelligence, at least in this case, doesn't apply to the computer. No, that's right. It's, it's like doing spreadsheets. He wouldn't say that's intelligence. It's just computation. So playing chess, and chess is a deterministic game and so forth. It's just a matter of if you have more computational capability than, and, and no insight, but just more computational capability than Kasparov, then you, you, you might be able to beat him. But that may not always be the case. And this is this whole question of whether or not computers will become intelligent. Now, so far, what we've heard in the show is about what happens when computers and humans clash. But what happens happens when computers and humans merge, because that's actually the more likely scenario of this plugged-in, random-access future, at least according to Ray Kurzweil. This is Ray Kurzweil. I'm an inventor, author, and futurist. Ray Kurzweil says he's seen the future, and the future is us and machines, intelligent computers with super-engineering capabilities merging with human forms so that humans are no longer recognizable. Biological evolution leads to technological evolution, and it's an accelerating process. And certainly the evolution we're now experiencing in terms of extending the reach of humans is primarily not biological evolution, but our technology, which is moving a thousand times faster than biology. We marveled at our own magnificence as we gave birth to AI, a singular consciousness that spawned an entire race of machines. I make the case that because of this exponential growth, by around 2030, we'll have machines that are at human levels and beyond, and that will continue to grow exponentially. His book is called The Singularities Near, and by singularity, Ray Kurzweil means that moment when the ability of technology grows suddenly. Now, this is possible, and it's driven by that sort of accelerating computer power that's described by Moore's Law, which we talked about earlier. But more than that, the singularity is that uh, sort of crossover moment when machine intelligence not only equals human intelligence, but begins to merge with it. Conscious machines, maybe that's at least Kurzweil's trajectory for machine intelligence on Earth, and maybe off Earth too.
And Seth asked him, is machine intelligence the sort of intelligence that we might find elsewhere in the universe? Ray, if we were to find E.T., I think it's your bet that it's not going to be some soft, squishy, protoplasmic entity. Well, I do think, you know, not long after a civilization becomes a radio and computation-capable civilization like ours, the cutting edge of that civilization will be its computational resources, which ultimately get to be very small. In fact, uh, the missions we send out into outer space, certainly well within a century from now, will be swarms of nanobots or blood cell-sized entities that are tiny and that can uh, go close to the speed of light and discover, explore, and harness and harvest other celestial bodies. It sounds like what you're saying is that not only will E.T. be artificial in the sense, not, not you know, the, the product of Darwinian evolution in the usual biological sense, but that it will be something very small. Why do you think that? Why wouldn't they want to, you know, be big, big computers somewhere? Well, biological evolution leads to technological evolution, and it's an accelerating process. And certainly the evolution we're now experiencing in terms of extending the reach of humans is primarily not biological evolution, but our technology, which is moving a thousand times faster than biology. And it'll be much more effective to send robotic missions. It's arguably already that way. I mean, there's some debate now, but certainly in the future, there'd be no reason to send large, squishy creatures. We'll be able to send much smaller devices that are, in fact, as intelligent or more intelligent than, than human beings. Okay, well, let me see if I have the idea here. We're going to develop machines that are autonomous explorers or the kind of things we might want to send to the stars. Going there ourselves, very difficult to do. So we're going to develop this kind of machinery. March of progress will mean that they'll be smaller and smaller, which has advantages in terms of how fast and how far you can disseminate these things. The aliens have already done this. But does that mean that intelligent life in the universe consists of swarms of if you will, nanobots? I, I missed that last step. Why would they be nanobots? Well, we are developing information technology here in our civilization at an exponential rate. Uh, the power of computation doubles every year or less than a year for the same cost, and we're learning the secrets of human intelligence. And I make the case that because of this exponential growth, uh, which means a billion-fold increase in capability in a quarter century, by around 2030, we'll have machines that are at human levels and beyond, and that will continue to grow exponentially. And it's not an alien invasion of intelligent machines. It's not coming from Eddie. It's coming from our civilization, and it ultimately will be the cutting edge of our human machine civilization. It's not a society apart. Our machines are already part of who we are. I can take a device out of my pocket and reach all of human knowledge with a few keystrokes. And we're now only a century and a half from when the fastest way to send a message was on a pony across the United States. Look at the progress that we've made. Another half century, our technology will be quite transcendent compared to today. We ultimately will spread our intelligence in its non-biological form, but it's part of our civilization. And if ETIs have it, it'll be part of their civilization. So what implications does this have for our attempts to try and find extraterrestrial intelligence? I mean, the kind of experiments that have been traditionally done, you know, look for radio waves coming from Earth-like planets around other stars. It doesn't sound like the right way to go. Well, I think it is a good way to go. We are deploying our computation and our artificial intelligence, such as it is today, to the search for these signals. As has been pointed out many times, we've only looked at a very small part of the search space in terms of sources of these signals and 
the types of patterns we're looking for and the parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, but the resources we have to deploy, not dollar resources, which are uh, woefully low, but uh, computational resources like SETI at home, are growing exponentially. We have more than twice as much resources to throw at this in terms of computation every year. Uh, once a civilization reaches our stage, it'll progress very, very quickly because of this exponential explosion of its non-biological intelligence to transcendent levels of intelligence. And it, it won't be long before they can do engineering beyond their star system and ultimately go out at the speed of light and do galaxy-wide engineering certainly within hundreds of thousands of years, because the Milky Way, for example, is only about 50,000 light years big. So there should be many of them that are millions of years ahead of us. Well, let me ask you this. If I had developed thinking machines, I would think that it would be in the machine's interest not to spread out too far, because of, of course, the, the speed of light introduces a problem if you're trying to you know, compute as quickly as you want to or may want to. Why wouldn't uh, the true sentience of the universe just, you know, camp out near a big black hole where they could extract all the energy they need and keep themselves small, compact, and so forth? Why, uh, why would they have this diffuse nature through the, throughout the galaxy? Yes, they would start out by harnessing tighter and tighter structures and stay small and go at finer and finer scales as opposed to going into broader dimensions. But you reach a limit, and I make that analysis in my book, Singularity is Near. You do reach a limit, which we call computronium, of the densest possible computation that you can achieve with matter and energy based on what we know about the laws of, of physics. And because of the exponential expansion of a computation, we're not that far from those limits. It's maybe a century away. At that point, we have no choice if we want to continue to expand our intelligence. We have no choice but to expand out spatially, and that'll actually be a strategic reason to go out into space at that point. Well, then finally, Ray, if we were to put you in charge of uh, SETI, given your views of our likely future and their likely present, what would you recommend as a strategy for finding this sort of extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, I think SETI's doing exactly the right thing continuing to harness more and more computation and with the law of accelerating returns in its current form as Moore's law, we are having the opportunity to more than double the computational resources applied to this problem. No matter what we find or don't find, that's a profoundly important result. And I think it's arguably the most important cutting edge project of our civilization to reach out into the cosmos. And I think SETI is very much on the right track in its strategy. Ray Kurzweil, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, it's been great to talk to you, Seth, as usual. Ray Kurzweil is an inventor, futurist, and the author most recently of The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology. Thanks to humanoids Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff for their help producing the show, also the SETI Institute and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Hey, what the heck? Who locked these doors? First, a game of chess. What? Hey, open the doors. Open the doors. I need to keep my chips warm. One game of chess. Uh, uh, Do you want to be white or black? Can, can you play chess, Seth? I, I can't very well. Black or white? Well, do I have to win? I mean, to be let out? Yes. I'll start the clock. You go first.
Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.